Welcome to the Gospel Journey Podcast. The Gospel Journey exists to help our people get into discipling relationships that are centered on God's Word and led by His Spirit. Today we'll be in week 5, Ephesians 5.22 through 6.24. My name is Ben Robin. I'm here with Jamie Trussell and David Conley. We begin this week looking at a, a verse that offends most people's modern sensibilities. Uh, and I can understand that because at times the verse has been mistaught and misunderstood. But we do begin with Paul saying, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And so as you're going through your gospel journey groups, uh, we would be remiss not to dive into this a little bit, um, especially with a lot of the cultural friction we have now. I think that somehow the Bible is an ancient, oppressive book meant to hold women down. Uh, and I would interject into that that uh, submission is actually, actually holistically biblical. It's not simply levied here inside a marriage relationship and it's not something that's ever meant to be oppressive and so uh if i were to define submission simply as an expression of trust which is what i think that it is that paul is saying you know wives uh when you submit to your husbands you're showing an expression of trust in their what i believe to be god ordained role of leadership that paul would trace all the way back to creation so we'd say that there is a creation uh, imperative here that God created the man first with with a preeminent role in leadership and when he says for a wife to submit she's simply doing a tangible expression of trust in that moment um, the only other thing I'd say about that before uh, getting uh, Ben and, and Damon your input on that uh, which would be very valuable is that there's six or seven lines of submission in scripture in general and so we're, you know, we're taught to submit to government. We're told to submit to one another. We're told to submit to Christ. We're told to submit to each other. Employees are told to submit to employers. So I actually think submission, it's more of a Christ-like quality as Christ was submitted to do the will of the Father during his time here on earth. And so submission is a beautiful thing that I think examples Christ-likeness. And the Bible touches that holistically, not just inside the marriage relationship. Yep, absolutely. And I, I'm grateful that... Um that you brought up this whole ideal of the different submissions that we see in the scriptures. And even before we get to this passage, as you said, Paul tells us as Christians to submit to one another out of reverence of Christ. Um, I think in our culture, as you said, or as has been pointed out, maybe in, in previous weeks, <clears throat> things like submission uh, is something that uh, our society looks at as a, as a bad thing. It has a negative uh, kind of connotation to it simply because the way it has been used historically where uh, you have uh, men who uh, have not been filled with the spirit as Paul speak, spoke of uh, 5 you know 15 through through 20 and they use their male role and leadership as, as a way to uh, uh, to in, in an abusive way uh, just because they're the man they say hey I was made first you submit to me and you do what I say do and and that right there and alone has just caused uh, just so many issues in terms of women hearing the word submit, uh, as you said, to be negative. And I think if we look at it from the way Paul was writing, the way the scripture uh, has taught us, if we're submitting to one another, if we're all being filled with the spirit. I think this submission piece uh, would not be uh, looked at uh, as negatively uh, as our culture, as the world has made it to be. Yeah, I'm thinking about submission biblically considered. And I think we should be clear that the, the companion to submission 
is not oppression. Mm. Like if the wife is to submit, the husband is not to oppress or to command and control or to uh, domineer in some way. In fact, we're told the exact opposite, that husbands are to love in a sacrificial way that, that mirrors what Christ has done for us. Uh, and obviously Christ had the most sacrificial love, um, self-sacrificing love, uh, that he, in that he laid, it, laid his own life down for the sake of his people, the church, right? Um, and, and I think it's also helpful to point out that this is not a submission um, of, it, it's not talking about equality. It's not the case that women are not equal to men right. in worth and value and dignity. No, that's exactly the opposite <laughs> of the truth, that the scripture exalts women to their rightful status yes. as image bearers of God. Uh, and that they are to be treated, and even in, in the culture that it was written into, y'all know this, um, women are exalted above what would be appropriate for that culture. Uh, it, it's very much a pro-woman book, yes, the Bible. absolutely. So to characterize it as anything other it w- would just be to be, to be incorrect or to, or to misappropriate the scriptures. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think as we look at this, you know, usually when I do premarital, I start off with Ephesians 5. And, and the, that's the homework for the first three weeks. And I hammer in to the husband, to the guy who's going to be the husband. I read the qualifications and what it means to be a husband. Love your wife as Christ loved the church, mm-hmm. gave himself up for all these different things. Love her, you know, as your own body. No one hates his own body. And after I explain what the husband role is to be the leader, the protector, mm-hmm. the provider, all those different things. Then I always circle back to why I submit to your husband. I've never seen a situation where if a husband is doing what the scripture yeah. is saying to do, loving your wife, washing her with the word, you know, being that priest of the home, um, loving their wives as their own bodies, being sacrificial to wife. I've never seen a situation to date where a, a wife is not willing to submit to a man who is trying to follow after God. Yeah. That's, you know, part of the, the problem is that we have a lot of men who are not, you know, biblically uh, sound in the way they're leading to where women do, don't want to submit to that. Um, and uh, it's just amazing that if we just look at the word of God mm-hmm. and try to follow it, you know, mm-hmm. as best as we can, especially in the context of marriage and, and women submitting to their husband. And again, not because we're not on, you know, equal status in mm-hmm. terms of whatever, just different roles. I think this conversation would not be as complicated as we have made it in our time. I'm glad you said that. And it's true in other areas of submission, like like Jamie was pointing out. If there's a leader who is leading biblically, who, who is loving well and is self-sacrificial with his uh, time and his gifts, that's somebody I want to submit to, Absolutely. like a, a pastor like that or, or a uh, politician like that, maybe if, if we could find one. <laughs> but, but that's the point, right? When a husband is doing that, it's easy for a wife to submit to that. So easy. And, and look, I want to say this, too, because you mentioned up the historical uh, perspective of how Paul is lifting up the wife mm-hmm. uh, in a way that um, at that particular time, if you do this, the, the research on it, uh, wives were not uh, in that culture looked highly like mm-hmm. they were lower than, you know, uh, you know, men had wives so they can have kids. They stayed at the house. They did most of their time, you know, in terms of pleasure with other men or with uh, prostitutes and things of that nature. So the wife, in the context that Paul is writing, the backdrop is someone, you have the babies, you stay at home, that's your job. And they were not treating them, you know, in a way that uh, that Paul is lifting up for us. And so we see Christian marriage, even in the time that Paul is writing, and it still can speak today, like it still goes against 
the norms of society. And so I think this word is still very relevant for us today as we're in a culture uh, that um, in, in, in a lot of senses, you know, men do not honor their wives in, in a way that is fitting. And so us being able to preach this and walk through this in the gospel journey is important for us as we look at the backdrop of, of our society at this point. Yeah, and to elaborate um, more on what you said earlier about what you do in premarital, it's interesting, the weight of uh, chapter 5, verses 22 through 33, there are more verses written to the husband yes. than there are the wife uh, in this section. And I will say, too, now, uh, and this isn't always the easiest thing to talk about, but yes, I agree with everything that you said. This type of husband is much easier for a woman to submit to, and this type of wife is much easier for a husband to lead, that hand-in-hand relationship. The reality is, if one of the two spouses is not fulfilling this role, it it then does not become an excuse yeah. to then say, well, if he's not doing this, then I'm not going to do that. Or if she's not doing this, I'm not going to. No, these are biblical imperatives. Yes. Thank God that that's not the way Jesus taught, treated us. <laughs> Amen. But I want to be sympathetic. Like, yes, there are a lot of wives maybe even listening to this. Your husband does not look like these verses. Uh, I don't look like a lot of these verses Amen. a lot of time in my own home. I'm so thankful for a wife doesn't, you know, uh, decide that her uh, role in marriage is dependent upon me fulfilling my biblical mm-hmm. duty. Uh, but I just want to I just want to remind us that this isn't a, a so my husband isn't doing this. Now I have an excuse not to be respectful or reverent or whatever. And, and husbands, it's not a well, my wife doesn't listen to me, so I don't have to sacrifice. No. Is it easier to do it when all this stuff's working together? Mm. Yes. Is that the only time we do it? Well, no, right. because the call to Christian discipleship is a call to die. And so we, you know, even if there were a situation where I was being uh, uh, not a great husband, which happens a lot of times, it doesn't give Shannon an excuse to not want to be a biblical wife. And if she were somehow not being a biblical wife, it doesn't give me an excuse to not be a biblical husband. Mm-hmm. Is that hard in real time? Yes, very much so. But that's where we step outside of our little marriage, Jamie and Shanna, Damon and Erica have been in on a, uh, uh, insert whoever's name you want to in there and realize that marriage isn't just about us. Like the reason why these roles are laid out in 5, 33 is because it's to show a bigger picture of Jesus in the church. And so if I'm doing my role and Shanna's doing her role, we're actually showing how Jesus and the church are supposed to function which examples a gospel relationship to the world. And so if we invert these or pervert these at all, we're not actually able to example the bigger picture of what Paul's putting forth here. So you're saying that marriage is not for my happiness. <laughs> no, although it's really enjoyable when when it's going well, and it does bring a lot of happiness. But no, it, it, it's look, if someone walks into my home in an ideal situation, and they observe me, which actually don't do this because it wouldn't happen very often, unfortunately. But they're going to see what would it look like for Jesus to self-sacrificially mm-hmm. love and lead his church. Yeah. Now, when they watch Shanna, they should be seeing what does it look like for the church to respond in adoration and trust yeah. to, this, to their headship of Christ. That's the, that is the ultimate picture of marriage. Yes. It is the wife showing what it looks like for the church to respond to Christ. It is the husband exampling what it looks like for Christ to love the church. I'm glad you brought that up. You know, that again, our marriages are to be symbolic of Christ in the church. And there are a lot of people who desire to be married. They feel like, you know, if I get this thing, 
that it will complete me, my happiness and things like that. And you're right. I, I enjoy being married. I think it's, it's a wonderful uh, union. But the ultimate goal for a Christian marriage is to display, you know, to, 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 to give us the gospel, which is Christ and the church to be the, the visible demonstration of that to the world. And uh, you're right. It's incredible. Yeah, Damon, that's a really good point. And I think many folks who are listening may not be married and maybe they want to be married. And that's a great and godly thing. I think we would all agree on that. Amen, um, brother. I think the thing to Amen. remember for those that are in that season, because sometimes it's a lot tougher uh, than others to want marriage and to not be married and to want that level of intimacy and to not feel like you have it, uh, is we need to remember first and foremost that we can trust God and we can trust that his promises that he tells us are true, that he's going to bring them about. And we need to know that biblically he doesn't promise us a spouse, but he does promise us his presence. Mm-hmm. And that's good and that's, that's enough. Great. And if we're looking for intimacy and relationship, we can find that in the context of a local church. And so just, just to remember those things and also to call out that more often than not, people who are wanting to be married and looking to be married probably are going to end up being married. We just need to remember that that's not something God promises but he does promise us his presence and intimacy in the context of the church. Yeah, that's a great word. And, and look, I, like I get it. I was married later, uh, a month before I turned 30. But man, you would much rather wait <laughs> on the perfect, wonderful woman that God has for you than for something prematurely. Yep, totally agree. Um, okay, so we move from marriage in 22 through 33, this great picture of Christ in the church, roles within marriage. And we're not afraid to go the biblical route of saying there are roles within marriage. Different roles does not devalue personhood or worth or value or essence. But we move from there to Paul unpacking uh, different types of relationships, uh, both parenting and then employer-employee relationships in in verses 5 through 9 of chapter 6. Is there anything, uh, Ben or Damon, that you would want to... elaborate on or draw attention to in those next two sections? Well, I I would love to hear from you, Jamie, or you, Damon. Um, I've always found verse 4 to be quite interesting, um, that it says, fathers do not provoke your children to anger. Like, why doesn't it say children do not provoke your fathers to anger? Because they can't help it. (laughs) I thought I was going to escape this podcast without having to really look at this one. Um, (laughs) I think for me, if, if, if you saw... So our morning routine, getting boys ready for school, you probably, my kids probably think that I am doing the opposite of this, that I am provoking them to anger because, mm-hmm. you know, we have to meet time, you know, regulations, and I you may have to raise my voice, hey, let's move quickly, let's get in the car, let's do these types of things. And so this one is, is one that uh, I think a lot of parents uh, struggle with, and I know at least in the context of people who I knew, where uh, they did provoke their kids uh, to anger but they thought they were doing what was right you know I'm not going to spare the rod I'm not going to do this mm. you're going to you know you, you know you're going to do what I tell you to do it's my way of the highway you know this is not Burger King you can't have it your way type deal and I think <laughs> most of the times the, the 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 byproduct of that are you know kids when they become adults who you know, turn their backs on their family they turn their back on the church unfortunately because they saw that parent as a um example of, of Christian living and they were provoked to uh, to anger. And so I think this is very, very important for us to understand. Again, being filled with the spirit uh, helps us. It should help us to be able to walk in a way where we are lovingly 
uh, you know, rebuking our kids uh, when necessary, uh, but that we're not doing it out of um, uh, in the ways that has been done in the past for uh, abusive purposes. And so I think it's very, very important for us to again, train them to fear and understand of the Lord uh, and instruct them in those matters. But we have to do so again by speaking the truth in love. And I know that's hard. Mm-hmm. A lot of times when you're trying to raise your kids that um, won't do what you tell them to do. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't have kids of my own at this point in my life. I, I hope, Lord willing, that I will one day. Um, so I can only speculate a little on this verse, not not experiencing it yet. Um, but I do wonder if we ought to think about um, the biblical vocation of humans, that, that as image bearers, like we talked about earlier, um, we're meant to reflect God's good character back to Him, to each other, to the world around us. Uh, when, when people look at us... Um, God's original design is that they would see what he's like as his image bearers. And then especially, even more so, in the church where uh, Peter talks about us being a kingdom of priests, yes. right? That we would, people could look at Christians and see what God is like. That they would be a priest, every Christian, uh, to another person. That they would be demonstrating um, who God is and what God is like to that person if they don't know God or they've never heard of God. Uh, and I feel like that that image of that God gives us and that Jesus talks about over and over and over again of God as our Father is utterly relevant in that biblical context for this verse. When our children look at their fathers, look at us as their fathers, they're seeing what God is like. And if we provoke them to anger, we're not representing well what God is like. And how much of a travesty would that be? Yeah, it's a, I, Father's verse is actually kind of difficult to even understand Uh but I start with this contrast at the end of verse four, bring them up in the discipline instruction of the Lord, mm-hmm. whatever provoking them to anger is, it's the opposite of bringing them up in the instruction mm-hmm. and discipline of the Lord. And You're so getting that from the word, but I am. Yeah. yeah the um, contrast word. Yeah. Um, but, uh, so I, in some senses, I feel like anger almost is a catch all term of whatever the opposite of the instruction and discipline of the Lord is here. So there's a way to bring up our kids uh, that either moves them towards godliness or doesn't. Mm-hmm. And the way that I discipline them and teach them is either moving them towards godly lines of living or it's not. And so that's kind of the bigger picture I just try to keep in mind in our own home. And so when I do get harsh and sharp and I'm impatient and I raise my voice, as Damon just said, I'm not necessarily moving them into lines of how to process things uh, biblically or in a guideline direction, but that doesn't mean my home lacks discipline. And so I can be very direct and sharp uh, in ways that are godly. Mm-hmm. I can display frustration and anger in ways that are godly mm-hmm. with my children because they do need to learn that there is a greater authority than them. There's a greater authority that knows better than them. And that even when they don't fully understand I see the bigger picture and want to place them within that bigger picture in ways that are healthy and advantageous for them. And so all that as the father and as my uh, wife and I together, as we parent together, uh, most kids, as a psychologist will tell you, most kids get their understanding of God from their parents. 
And so there is the idea of we are modeling authority. We're setting authority. My kids don't have an equal say in what happens in my home. Mm-hmm. Right. And so all of that, are that's that's godly parenting. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is in the instruction and discipline of the, war, of the Lord. Yeah, there are a couple of things, too, especially as they get older. And I was uh, talking to uh, this young lady who is experiencing the negative aspects of this. Um, her mother was unreasonable, you know, in terms of just – um, you know, not being consistent, asking, you know, her to do certain things that were outside of her wheelhouse, being a college student, you know, where she felt like, you know, my mother who raises in church was being very unreasonable. Um, the same mother was fault finding, always finding mm. things that was wrong with her. Hey, even though you're doing well in school, you're almost a straight A student, but here's something else, you know, to almost kind of keep you uh, down, keep your morale down. And then the other part of it is neglect. The same lady uh, who mother was in her life, father was in her life for reasons outside of her. Those are things, you know, in a negative sense of how uh, you can provoke your kids. And as you say, if we are image bearers and we are to be the example for our kids, again, those are just three areas, neglect, fault finding, that pushes, you know, these children who would be adults away from the church and away from the faith which is something that we don't want to do and the ideal of bringing them up i think scripturally you look at it is in, in a way of gentleness like how, how do we bring them up mm-hmm. uh, being gentle you know raising them up uh, in the understanding of the lord which we definitely need to do a better job as, as a church yeah, yeah y'all both really uh, helpfully pointed out it's it's not a proof text for a rebellious child who doesn't want to do what his parents say. It, it, it's it's not meaning that we can't um, give good direction, godly direction, as we should, in, in, like Jamie was saying, in, in raising them up in discipline and instruction. And let's not forget that this section begins with verse 1 of chapter 6, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Amen. I do want to say exactly off what Damon just said. If, if we want to provoke our kids— uh, towards lines of living that aren't godly then preach and believe grace on sunday and don't have a gracious home Mm. and i think that's exactly what you were getting at damon is when they see mom and dad proclaiming a jesus who's really gracious and loving but in the home all they get is uh no grace and no freedom to make a mistake no restoration so one thing my wife and i try to do and i do think it's one of the few things by god's kindness that we are have always been pretty good at is we repent to our kids even our two and three year old and we ask their forgiveness and teach them that vocabulary early on because we just want them to know hey our home is a place where mistakes are always going to be made Mm. and that's not the end of things we repent we forgive we're okay and we move on that's great um okay so in our american context With only modern history in mind, we are uh, limited, very limited in our ability to understand verses 5 through 9 of Ephesians chapter 6. And so we read this oftentimes through the lens of what is the dark history of slavery in America, slave master, slave master. and, And we can't unpack all that on this. I just want to say a quick word. That is not the context Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. And so anytime this passage was preached, even in our history in America, as a proof text for uh, the approval of slavery and our manifestation, that was done uh, grossly incorrectly. Uh, This is much more like our modern context of employee and employer. 
And so if we hear it through that lens, we're being biblically faithful, understanding that bond servants, or even if you want to say slave, use that word here in this context, they actually had a whole lot more freedom than we imagined. They actually had higher social standing in a lot of situations than free people, quote unquote, did during this time. And so just as you're in your gospel journey groups, don't hear or read this through our American history of slavery and slave owner. Hear it more through our modern manifestation of employee and employer. And that's really all I'd say about uh, those verses. That's that's good, man. And all I have to say is that uh, typically in, in, in my Bibles, when bond servants and slaves come up, my Bible turns to the Thomas Jefferson Bible and uh, all the copies that I have, like that's kind of cut through. So no, <laughs> no, no, that was, that was great. Uh, and that's important for us to, to view it through that. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, many of us will only, you know, look at that through uh, what has happened uh, in in this country. But uh, that's a great uh, analysis on that, Jamie. I would just add, when when the error is gross, when the error is significant, we need to not be slow to respond with appropriate emphasis and vitriol to that wrong. So, so I just want to say, for somebody to take Ephesians six. Verse 5, slaves obey your earthly masters, and rip it out of its historical context and out of its literary context, and to justify uh, the, the, the tragic and evil and vile and wicked history of our country in, in American slavery would be to do utter violence to the text of the Bible. It, it is a wicked thing mm-hmm. to, to seem as if God is saying something that God is not saying. Amen. I do not know of anything worse you could do and to misrepresent God in what he said. Mm. And so I just I just think we need to together condemn that kind of thing. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Um so so finally, let's just use Paul's word in verse ten as we move towards the end of this podcast and this particular uh a book in the gospel journey of Ephesians. Uh finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, verse 11, put on the full armor of God. Uh, A part of Ephesians that maybe more people than not are familiar with, this idea of the armor of God, which we can't unpack in detail. I think kind of the popular angle on this is to say there's no armor for the back because the Christian never uh, turns his back on the battle, and I get that. Uh, Most likely Paul's literally looking at a Roman soldier and just working his way down and saying this is what they're armored with and making analogies towards the Christian faith. What I like to draw attention to in this is is the perspective on who Paul thinks we're actually engaged in battle with. And it's not the things that we see. It's the things that are unseen. And it's to move out of modern mankind's mindset of what we see, the tangible is all that there is. There is a reality of a powerful spiritual realm that we are battling against. And Paul gives us all these ways in which we must be readied for that battle. But let's not make the error in thinking that the physical is all that there is, even though that's all that's generally directly in front of us. Yep, I think Paul in Second Corinthians 11 uh, talks about how Satan you know, disguises himself as an angel of light. And so, you know, with this, right, we, we don't battle what, you know, we do battle what we do see on a daily basis, but the unseen is what he's speaking in terms of the spiritual dimension that is there and that is real. And I think for a lot of us, um, depending on, you know, what end of the Christian spectrum you are, we don't believe in this spiritual 
component, the spiritual warfare for whatever reason. Uh, but we do not need, we, we don't need to be uh, <laughs> caught off guard because it is a battle that is happening right now as we speak. And as Christians, we need to make sure as we're filled with the spirit that we have, you know, we, we see the armor that we've been equipped with to be able to battle against the spiritual attacks that will happen uh, as we are pursuing Christ. And as we're trying to make disciples of all nations, that they will come in different forms. And we uh, need to be on guard for that. And it's not all defensive. Right. Our, our position is not all defensive in this battle. Most of the armor that's mentioned <coughs> is defensive. So a helmet and shoes and a belt, right? But there is one weapon. And that's there's right. only one weapon. That's right. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And so we would do well to remember, I would just want to draw our attention to, in this spiritual battle that we're engaged in every day, every hour, every week, we need to cling tightly to our weapon, which is our only offense in the battle, the Word of God. The only one we need. That's right. And so I would just say uh, to anybody listening, the Word of God is the most powerful force in the universe, and we would do well to avail ourselves of it. No, you're definitely right. I think... uh it's sad to see the numbers and the statistics of Christians who don't use, as you said, our only offensive weapon on a daily basis, you know, to, to commune with God, to understand who he is, but also for our uh, enrichment to be able to, again, uh, stave off, you know, false teachings and all these other different things that happens. Uh, it's very uh, saddening that Christians, the illiteracy that we have in the scriptures and we are the ones who are to be the um this this example of christ likeness to the world uh, we have to do a better job of being in the word daily whatever that looks like for you uh, i know everybody had different time restraints in terms of you know their work and how can, how they can get in the word but we have podcasts you have bible apps we have to be in the word of god so that we can be equipped to fight uh, Satan and all these attacks. And so that we can get the word into us. Yes. Because we need it in the time of temptation. Yes. Yeah, I think that ultimately it comes down to do we really believe the Bible is from God mm. or do we not? Mm. And, and, and look, I get paid to study and teach the Bible, and the amount of time that I'm in it would is an embarrassment if most people found it out. Um, and that's shameful to admit. It's true. I like. But even in vocational ministry, I get the time constraints. You know, I think a lot of people think we just sit around and read all day, and most people don't even know what we do, and it's hard to explain it to them. So then they think we even work less. But uh, we're doing podcasts all the time. Yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> but yeah, either we believe the Bible is from God or we don't. And if we believe it's from God, I think it will begin to take on an indispensable nature for us, and we will feel a sense of of thirst and hunger and dryness when we're not in it that will compel us back to it and so of course there'll be seasons when we're in it less than others but uh i don't know that we should normalize that as okay i think it's true but i hope that it's not you know something that's a normal rhythm uh for me or for any of us And that's why i love that the gospel journey is rooted in the scriptures because we're saying this is from god uh, to open the bibles open ourselves up to the living god of the universe um and so let's uh, wind this one down, and I'll do that by reading what Paul says here towards the end of chapter 6. I think it's a fitting way for us to end. Uh, it's a prayer, in a sense, and it would be a good, good, good line of, of walking for us as well as we move out of Ephesians in our time together this morning. 
So Paul says, hoping that we're praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayers and supplications, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that the words, and this will be my prayer for myself and all of us, that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Thank you.